Welcome to Fire Your Therapist. If your therapist doesn't know how to facilitate a group, you should probably fire your therapist. I thought we were supposed to start the shows with a joke, but I, I think that's true. Oh, you're right. I messed up. That is true. That's okay. We can go with it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's do a quick check-in, Dan, and then we're going to talk about groups today, which I'm excited about. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about groups, too. Do you want to check in first? Um, you know... When I come into a group, I have a very interesting way of checking in. So I'm going to do what I would do if I were in a group right now. Right? I'm in a group of two, you and me. But um, I usually forfeit my check-in until a later time. So I'm going to do that. I don't, that's just how I come into a group. I say, I have nothing right now, but it will come to me. So if you'll afford me the time later, I'll let you know when I'm ready. Gotcha. Well, we're going to have a little problem then because that's how I check in in groups also. Is it really? Really? I didn't know that about you. But I'll go first. Okay. Because by you saying that, it's made me aware of why I tried to go last. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Okay. So usually when I'm in a group, whether it's friends or a psychotherapy group or any kind of group, uh-huh. um, my discomfort with not being able to track everybody in the room, not being able to know how they're feeling, know how they're receiving me, know if they're all right. Mm-hmm. I kind of shut down and I need to hear everybody's check-in to sort of remind me I'm human and bring me back to being sort of embodied and aware so that I can check in. Huh. That's interesting. I didn't know that about you. I know that, I know that you have a history with groups and coming in in different ways depending on the context and you know, you've explained to me what it's like for you to be in a group, but I think anyone who hasn't already listened to our check-in episode, if you are interested in running groups or being a part of a group, you have to go listen to that episode because we check in at the beginning of it, each of our episodes um, as a way to sort of take the temperature and see where we're at. Um, and as Dan, like you're just explaining now, it, it impacts how you come into the group. So check-ins are really important. So I'll be checking in later. <laughs> really? So that that doesn't support you to find your check-in now? I don't know if I check in later because I'm waiting for the support to do so. I think notoriously coming from a very large family, um there's there are so many voices all of the time. There's so much going on. There wasn't a lot of checking in. So I eventually figure out what's going on with me. It just takes me time to sort of monitor myself. I don't have an immediate feedback of what's going on with me. I mean, I've been honing that over the years, but um, I find that when I check in initially, I say something that really doesn't matter. Like, oh, you know, I don't know, I'm feeling kind of warm in this room or I'm thinking about what I was doing before I got here and I'll check in with something that it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter if I share it or not. But then halfway through, I'll go, oh, I know why I, you know, I know what I need in order to be supported to be in this conversation right now. And it just occurs to me later. It sounds really similar to what I was saying. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you need enough time in the group to sort of attune to what's going on. Uh-huh. Maybe know, that's it. Yeah. To know which, I was going to say like which side of you, but like how to show up, like which, which part of you is important in that room. Uh-huh. If you're saying you bring in something that you think is irrelevant to the room, then maybe you haven't found the part of your awareness that matches what feels important for you in that group. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm realizing now another reason why I probably come in that way <clears throat> is because by, by my, my history and my context has taught me 
to come into the group in a way that is more um, more as a people pleaser. So, for example, letting others go first, um, saying something that's not going to disrupt whatever's already happening in the group. And I'll share things that really aren't all that important to me, but they serve whoever's there. So if I sense that people are feeling uneasy or uncomfortable, I may share something that lightens the mood. I mean, that's sort of part of the role that I played, you know, in many groups that I've been in. And um, I'm a very adaptable person by nature and and nurture. So (laughs) I think that's probably why I share things that I'm not, you know, I'm not that connected to. And then later on when I am feeling more comfortable, I'll speak to whatever I'm the risk taker I'm going to name every elephant in the room and that's how I check in I go I feel like this is happening right now and then it makes people very you know uncomfortable and feeling awkward but for some reason by the middle of the of the group I have no problem doing that (laughs) is there an elephant in the room right now no no but there might be one later (laughs) at at which point I will name it well then Alexander or something (laughs) Then I'll uh, honor your request to revisit your check-in should it emerge later. Okay. Can I talk to that that point also on the on the um, on groups and the check-in and how necessary it is before we move on? Sure. Um, I mean, whenever I've run groups, I always have a check-in for everyone, and I always try to let them know that you can check in in any capacity you want to, including saying pass including saying, I'd like to check in later, including saying, I just don't want to. Um, and that that is a check-in. Like, but I need your input. Like, I need you to cast your vote of whether or not you, you have something to say. We're not going to step over it. You, you do have a moment. But if you decide to say, I have nothing to say, that's fine. And um, every group that I've, that I've been a part of where that's, that's stepped over, you know, you start to n- not be including people right from the beginning and then that sets a precedent. So, um, yeah, I think it's like really, really, really important to know where people are at and just take the temperature in the beginning. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Okay. What do you want to talk about on this topic, Dan? Well, I'm sure both of us could get into a handful of really specific group facilitation styles and practices that we've been trained in or practiced but maybe it would be good to spend just a couple minutes and share with people our first experiences in a group uh-huh. and maybe um, more specifically to talk about how people responded, how group members responded to us um, when we facilitated in the style that we're trained to work in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we should really explicitly say that we're trained in a relational gestalt style of group facilitation and it, it actually does look different than your typical um group therapeutic group most groups you know are built around a specific need and i think that you and i are trained to work with varying needs very competing needs actually um of communities that don't typically get together for therapy so um just to say that explicitly like we have a very different approach but in my experience it's been Real, a really good approach because you can bring together the most diverse people yeah, and have healing and um, connection and real dialogue that wouldn't have been possible without some of the, um, the supports that we've been taught to put in place. 
Yeah, I think maybe one other thing um, to mention about the way we facilitate groups is there's a greater emphasis on uh, mutual aid between people mm-hmm. than on the facilitator being the one and only support in the room that comes to everybody's aid anytime something is dysregulating, upsetting. So I think a lot of people who've been in a group might feel like sometimes the therapist does sort of one-on-one therapy with an audience, right? taking turns sort of. And I think we really push back against that, which leaves, and this is sort of bridging into some of my first group experiences, it leaves this vacuum where somebody will share something and assume, well, you're the therapist, you're supposed to make it better, explain it, uh-huh. you know, explain to them and the group like what the diagnosis or what's wrong with it or why they would feel that way or what the solution is. Yeah. Um, and instead, you hold a space for that emotional experience, but you redirect it to the group. Yes, the redirecting is, is so important. It is, it is. And some of my first experiences, it's, um, it's really interesting to throw that back to the group and sort of say, Um, that you feel it's more important for everybody to feel into what it's like to hear that, what comes up for them when they hear that, Uh you know, how they're experiencing the other person um, without doing a lot of one-on-one trying to take care of that person first. Now, obviously, if something is like a crisis, it's your job in the room to attend to it. But just for, um, you know, typical group-to-group conversation, um, that redirection can be really dysregulating some members. It really can because, I mean, if you think about it, the tendency when you come into a group to want to do one-on-one therapy is completely natural and pretty wise if you haven't built any ground with anyone in the group yet, but you know that therapist pretty well. You know, that's the person you're going to turn and orient yourself toward while you're sharing, you know, more vulnerable things or, or really sharing anything at all because you may have more ground with them. You may already sense how they would respond. And so I've often at the beginning of groups, you're touching on something I know you know very well, is each person in the group, as they start to share, will look at the therapist. They're not looking at each other. And then right. over time, you can tell the group is growing when they start to look at each other and less and less at the therapist, unless the therapist is you know, speaking. But you and I, Dan, and, and people that have trained relationally to run groups are, are specifically trained to just be a group member. And then you have some responsibilities for safety and um, confidentiality, stuff like that, you know, reporting, you know, all the things that we, we are by law responsible for. But I think that is really dysregulating for people coming in, but very natural for them to come in that way. Right. Well, that reminds me of something else that I remember being um, interesting to see people's response to the idea of confidentiality and privacy. When you bring that up, when you bring that up in a new group and you transparently point out the way that that we do, um, that while you as a therapist have a legal obligation to confidentiality, the group itself actually doesn't. Mm -hmm. There's sort of like um, a social etiquette that's presumed that it's private and doesn't leave the room. But when you tell the group explicitly that the safety and privacy of this group is entirely dependent on your willingness to commit to it. Right. No one's going to come after you. You're not going to get arrested. Right. Right. And group members often come in in the first couple of weeks and like, so what are the rules? Mm-hmm. What can we talk about? What can we not talk about? Right. Yeah. And, to th- and, and for us to be saying to future therapists right now or already practicing therapists, 
did you know that you're going to have to discuss those things with everyone and that there aren't any rules, but you're going to collaboratively come up with them? Not only is that a really interesting process, I, I love the first couple weeks of a group because everyone comes in with their, their fears and their concerns and immediately realize they can lean on each other to uphold you know, whatever needs are there. So yeah. one yeah. person comes in and says, you know, um, what are we going to be talking about in here? And how do I know that so-and-so is not going to go out and say something at the bus stop about me? And the facilitator could s- oppressively say, well, let's all sign a contract and I'll draw it up and we'll, we'll all agree we'll never talk about each other outside of here and we'll never exchange phone numbers and we'll never, you know, meet outside the group. Right. But what use is that? Well, we also know it's not true. Everybody talks to their right. partners about their group. You know, yeah. like if you're in a group therapy, you're going to talk to your family about what it's like. You're yes. going to talk to your partners about what it's like. Yes. Like we all know that the that experience extends beyond the group room. So I think there's the contract a lo- becomes both oppressive like you said and yeah. kind of symbolic only. That's true. And, and I you're think not it's, really it's emotionally false... committed to it. You're just It's a false promise, too. You yeah. can't really promise that. But everyone's saying, well, as soon as someone violates that, as soon as I find out someone's violated that, then it all comes back to who? The therapist, the facilitator. And then if somebody had violated it, it's the therapist's fault for some reason. As if they could have stopped someone from speaking about someone else. So the more interesting (laughs) thing that I I, I agree with you, the first few weeks of a group are are really interesting. Um, And I've seen groups where in those first few weeks, they explicitly decide that there are enough people in the room that are terrified of the group content being talked about outside of the group that they really want everybody to agree and commit, you know, don't say anything ever. Right. And there are other groups that are like, nah, talk to whoever, heck, talk to each other. Like if two group members happen to bump into each other, great, talk about the group, whatever. Um, So it's really interesting to see how differently people feel about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think the one thing that I as the facilitator and I also would say as a member of that group put in is that I don't think it's um, wise or respectful to not make an expectation that it at least be brought back to the group. Right. So things are going to come up, right? Say you talk to your partner and they have a reaction to what you say about your group work. Say two people do bump into each other at the grocery store and start chatting. Uh I think that's fine personally. If a group doesn't want it to be that way, that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do put out this expectation that bring that back to the group. Right. Because part of our struggle as a group is to learn how to hold that complexity, to learn how mm-hmm. to hold, yeah. you know, potential ruptures with that, potential disagreements about that and work through that rather than treat that as like ethically wrong and you just avoid it. Right. Well, you know that in, in school they teach about subgrouping and how you're not a, there is a really hard fast rule that comes from I don't I'm not going to credit him but it, it in my courses I was taught from Yalom's group book as many of us were Yeah, I was too. And I'm not sure if this is explicitly in there but my professor certainly explicitly s- tested us on subgrouping and how it is not allowed and you cannot go and form a friendship outside of the group among two of the eight group members and then come back in and ex- you know um, and I've seen that happen, but there's such a hard and fast rule in training about how that is a wrong thing. And, you know, that's not that that's such a uh, an oppressive rule because it's decided by the therapist. But clearly the group members don't want that. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand the need to protect the safety of the group and saying, well, 
if two people form a clique outside of the group and then they come back, then other people may feel some way about it. Or what if, if those two friends, whatever, have a rift come between them, then will they want to come back to the group? Will it affect their, you know, their um, way of participating? And there are all sorts of concerns, but why is that not a topic that comes up among the group in the right. first few sessions? Like, right. Hey, Dan, I know you're in this new group with me. Um, I was just wondering, I think we ride the same uh, public transport to get here. So if I see you, I just, I want you to know, like, please don't wave to me or say hello. You know, my family doesn't know I'm in therapy and that's a really sensitive topic for me. But I want you to know I see you. I know you. I'm not ignoring you. But I'm not going to wave. I might smile or something. But, you know, please right. don't, like, approach me. And, I, right. and I'm saying that here. And I'm also saying, like, that might change for me over time. Once I get to know you, I might change my mind. Right. And those are the conversations we have to have with group members in the beginning. And and as a facilitator, I very explicitly say I'm a part of this group too. I'm going to be sharing of myself. And I have ways that I want to be interacting with you outside of here, but I want to respect your way of interacting. So what do you want if I happen to run in, into you at the grocery store? And right. how do you want me to approach you? And then here's how I want you to approach or not approach me. And so on and so forth. And that these things may all change over time. By the way... I'm going to introduce another check-in in about a month and see if anything's changed for anyone. And then as a facilitator, I will do that. And maybe no one wants to talk about it again, but at least I, I give them an opportunity to amend their choices. Right. And it, they, can, they can all bring it up at any point as well. But Yeah, I think an important thing to say explicitly about um, why we practice this way is that it fosters shared leadership. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. And even though a lot of group members will initially say, you know, why, why would you ask us to make this decision? Or isn't that your job? Or, you know, I don't know what's the rule, what's the policy, what's the law. Um, there is a struggle with it. But time and time again, you see that it only takes a couple months before the group sort of settles in with each other. And then people are also watching the clock. People are also worried about each other if they don't show up. Right. Like, oh, yeah. Suddenly you see this shared ownership of the group emerge. Mm -hmm. And you, then it takes that oppressive burden off the therapist to be this very artificial holder of everything. You know, and I, and I know some people are going to hear me say that and say, well, that's the therapist's job. And I would categorically disagree. Right. Right. If you think your job is to augment something that people don't need to do, then you're conditioning them. You're, you're sort of. Um, training them into a false way of, oh man, I can't believe I just said false, <laughs> into a unsustainable way of trying to interact. Yeah. You're leaving them ill-prepared for the difficulty of real relationships. You're right. I mean, what happens in a family if people aren't sharing responsibility for things? They decide, well, that's, that's my dad's job or my mom's job. Right. And what I happens to that one person who takes up that job? they become the bad guy if they mess up. <laughs> yep. And they probably drowned under the weight of yes. that unsustainable situation. It is unsustainable. And I mean, it, uh, you know, taking into consideration the context that, you know, some of the children may be very young and yes, the parent is going to have to bear a lot of responsibility, but if we're not fostering in a group, how to have shared responsibility, then you leave that group and you have groups of friends or you have groups of colleagues or whatever the case may be. Certain situations, there is going to be a, an oppressive sort of hierarchy and which always makes me very uncomfortable. But 
you know, we can all sort of navigate in if we know the structure of it. But when you're fostering collaborative support and collaborative um, ways of managing time together, then everyone becomes a little bit responsible and then no one's bearing too much of the burden. It's always unequally shared, but I love that part of groups when people start feeling ownership over it, especially when I start to see people who probably have never felt ownership in their own families, never felt ownership in any other group setting. And now they're like, wow, right. I have I have not only a say here, but I have impact. And I have, I have power. I have power. And I think that is like the most beautiful thing to see. And, you know, this leads us into another topic of, of sharing time and resources when a group gets together. I don't know if you've had any experiences, Dan, where... Um, you get a diverse group of people together. We're all going to be here for therapy or whatever the case is. And you see who in the group speaks first and who in the group speaks the most. Right. And have you ever had that experience um, and then had to ha- have a conversation about that? Or Absolutely. Absolutely. I've had um, surprisingly really hotly contested arguments in groups uh-huh. about whether there should even be a check-in. Really, and that people should be autonomously responsible for. If I need time, I'll make, I'll make myself like come forward with something. Oh, but some people just don't feel that like they're supported to do that. I know, and it's very hard to convince people who will absolutely say like, "No, if I want to talk, I'm going to talk. If I don't, I don't." Ah, uh, but that sounds like someone who has had a lot of privilege in their life, and they've always well, had time or space. Or to Or the speak. opposite end of the spectrum, and had a lot of trauma. So now they feel like this so is my their place. Collaborative, their ability to collaborate <clears throat> on sharing time and resources is minimal. And if a uh-huh. need comes up, it's unfiltered and unregulated. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if it doesn't, they're kind of shut down and they have those polarities. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. It could come from privilege also. But um, there's many reasons people could come to the table with um, struggles sharing time and resources. Yeah. Okay, so let me bring up an example of a group that I facilitated um, from from beginning through, I think, two years or so. And the group membership changed over time, but to, to get a group started is difficult in the first place. You need, you need to get, you know, people that are going to have enough support in their own lives that they can be a part of a group and that they've had enough one-on-one, you know, that they can really deal with the complexities of many competing needs and many personalities. And it's not just you and the therapist anymore. And it's not just your time anymore. It's everybody's. And, um, that's its own episode, I'm sure. But I had an experience. I've had this experience a lot of times where, um, you have a a mix of people with different contexts coming into the room. And some people who have been used to getting resources and by resources, I mean, um, they're allowed to speak freely in their lives. Uh, they have access to whatever they need to get jobs or food or housing. And, you know, life is, hasn't been too rough on them in that way. They kind of know how to manage the world. Mm-hmm. And then you put someone in the group who really is disenfranchised or just doesn't have um, access to certain things, sometimes just because of lack of um, of knowing how to get the resources, like maybe they didn't have role models or examples of how to navigate certain systems of like health insurance or, um, you know, community needs and all these things. So you have two very strikingly different people 
and you could, you know, if I was to simplify it, I would say one has pr- had privilege and one did not. And how do you help these two people have a conversation together when they've actually come to a place to share a resource? And one is very used to getting this resource and one is not. And now we're supposed to share it. So everyone comes to the group and the only resource you really have is time. You, you came to share time. We're not sharing food here. We're not sharing money. We're sharing time. And you have to kind of decide together how that's going to happen. And I've always decided that as the facilitator, not decided, but trained to decide, that as the group facilitator, um, I'm going to be a, a member of the group, but I'm going to be very sensitive to how the time is used. And I'm going to sort of oppressively stop people and keep checking in with everyone of, okay, I think we've all decided that um, Joe over here is going to speak on this topic. I'm noticing some shifts in the group. You know, one person is, you know, falling asleep or one person is totally disinterested in my, you know, how I'm gathering information about them. And someone else is very intrigued and keeps asking questions to keep Joe talking. And so I just want to pause and ask do we want to continue on this topic? And it's not, you know, everyone can say, yes, we do. And Joe can keep talking. But I just want us to note right now that if we're not deciding out loud that this is what we want to do, then by your silence, you are deciding that this is what you want to do. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I I like this example that you bring up of um, the polarity between somebody who's used to navigating resources and somebody that isn't. Right. For whatever the more complex context they come from, but that polarity. Um, and it's interesting to watch the person who isn't used to navigating resources um, try to share their struggle and somebody who is the way they respond. Uh-huh. It's always pep talking, troubleshooting, just do this, just do this, you'll be fine. Uh-huh. Yeah, it seems so right. easy for them. Right, it seems so easy for them. Right. Um, and which, is, which is shaming. It can be, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It can be like, oh, I should have known how to do these things, and this person right. seems to have it or all together. They already kind of know those tidbits of information, and still have barriers to enacting them. So the clue must be there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. They're, they're like, like, well, if I already know how to do that, and I'm not doing it, there's something wrong with me. Oh, I have a check in now. Do you have a check in? <laughs> right at time for us to check out. <laughs> now uh, we. Well, the end of that thought was, because yeah. um, it parallels what you were saying a minute ago about how people keep asking questions and one line of conversation continues for a really long time, right? So one of the things I bring up in those situations is just to point out, I noticed that all these questions are about investigating the details, finding out what they've tried or not tried. Like, it seems like we're troubleshooting. Right, right, right. Is problem solving. Problem solving, right. Is, is that what we want to do here? And sometimes a whole group is like, yes, I just need, you know, someone says, I just need some tips on this. Just, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. a few more minutes, give me some suggestions. Yes. But a lot of times that really silences people and they start to reflect on, oh, that's all I do all the time. And it doesn't change things. Yeah. That's all I get is tips and problem solving for this. And it hasn't changed. Yeah. And people get curious. Well, then what's missing? Which is a great intro into like resonance and vulnerability and, you know, other things that might be uh, absent in their relationships. Yeah, that's true. So you were reminded of a check-in. Yeah, I forgot that I didn't and that I forfeited for a while or postponed it. Um, 
I'm reflecting now on being a part. I've been a part of a group for many months now, and um, no one's ever checked in with me. Not once. Ever. Well, why would they? If they're good, consumerist, individualist members of our culture, <laughs> right. oh, then they're well the conditioned. Then they're well conditioned to assume that if you have something to say or if you need something, you don't need an invitation. Oh, let you me tell just, you. <laughs> you should just step in and take it. If let you me need. tell you how complex how complex this group is. So, I am a fish out of water in this group for about three different reasons. Three or four very different reasons. Um, I would never speak in this group. I have zero support to speak in this group. Not to mention um, that I have like a huge learning curve because I'm basically in culture shock all the time. And because of that culture shock, there there's not a fear, but there's a hesitancy to share certain things or to ask certain things because the responses I've seen in this group are so erratic sometimes there's a loving response sometimes there's a I don't have time for this response and I I'm 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 in such culture shock I can't really gauge you know why the responses are coming the way that they are so I choose I've been completely silenced um and I've withdrawn from the group in many many different ways but as I as I continue to participate you know I learn more and more and honestly I'm very interested in wow I'm I've never participated in this way before what are all the factors contributing to my isolation and my withdrawal and um, my f- my lack my feelings of lack of safety in a place where I thought I would be the most safe and now I'm you know getting to understand the complexities of it but I I feel like there's no um, attention to how out of water I really am. So the expectations on me are the exact same. Uh, This is my point here is that the expectations they have of me in the group is the same expectation they have of the most, um, uh, I don't want to say veteran, but like people that have been in the group for a very long time, they place the exact same expectation on me. And Hmm. uh, it's really stressful. So, I really desperately need an invitation to check in because at this point so much time has elapsed and you know it's been so it's it's been so much for me to handle in terms of complexity that I I couldn't even check in um spontaneously now because I have no I still have no idea how it would be received and there's such a risk here for me that if I check in or I be I get vulnerable that if it's not received, I mean the repercussions are too high. So I I refuse right until I know better. So I'm the I'm the person who kind of sits back and looks a little bit, but in most situations I feel quite confident because I've had I've had quite a lot of privilege in my life to be able to speak in groups. Um, I learned that in my family having having to talk over people all the time, but. I don't know. This is a really new experience for me. So that's my <laughs> very delayed check-in. Yeah. Is well, it's it it, it brings up um, one observation for me, which is how decontextualized we think people are. Uh huh. You know, if they assume that the expectations for you and somebody who's been in the group for a long time are the same, oh my goodness, there must yeah. be this undercurrent assumption that everybody is the same wherever they are. Mm-hmm. In whatever group, in whatever job, in whatever they happen to be doing, they're them. They'll show up the way they want to show up. Yeah. And that you don't need the context of that group 
to influence how you can show up or can't show up. Mm -hmm. So I think that's worth mentioning. Um, you also said the word culture in there somewhere. All over the place. <laughs> and I think that's really important to mention because almost all of the things we're talking about in the way we were trained to run groups is about building a culture in that group. Right. A well, a shared meaning of what it is, right? right? But because that's so, all culture is. Yeah, and doing so explicitly. And I think it reminds me of uh, one of the things in the Yalom book, which I know lots of people love the Yalom book, but there's a bit in there about the phases of a group uh -huh. and how it's supposed to look certain ways at certain points. Uh, and that's so culturally calibrated. I hate that. I hate it so much because that book was, it gave me such an expectation and then I went to work with a completely different population. It's just, I, I can't understand exactly. why they're teaching exactly from one very, you know, rigidly biased. I love Yalom. I love what he has to say, but he's, you know, it's based on one population. Right. Well, there's a difference between respecting a contribution to a field and treating it like a Bible. <sighs> exactly. It's exactly. a very different thing. There's not um, one way. That's the thing. If I could, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say that in my checkout. Go ahead. <laughs> um, but for, for us, at the core of this notion of culture is making some of those practices explicit. Um, and for me, that's not possible without being really transparent about your own struggles and vulnerability right. enough to bring yourself into the group as a uh, human member, right? right? If you're an objective facilitating observer who's not really like a human in the room, it won't work um, because you won't be able to model the resonance, uh, which is just a, a fancy word for sort of like attunement and mindfully um, responding to what you're picking up from other people, mm -hmm. um, which is the gateway to having good empathy, mm -hmm. not sympathy or pity, not like, you know, pep talking or cheering somebody up or saying, oh, that sucks. But like actually sitting with the same feeling with people, you can't do without transparency. Yeah, no, I Otherwise agree. it's sort of condescending. And mm -hmm. if you make a culture of empathy explicit as a purpose of a group, it really shifts your um, priorities as a facilitator. It does. And can I say that that's a risk in itself? I, I took a risk to be vulnerable and share my humanity in a group before. And because so few people are used to the check-in and are used to collaborative cultivation of culture within a group, um, I was actually shamed for it as the facilitator. I was uh, mocked and um, it was so painful. I cried like silently. Wow. I mean, I, I'm a crier and I, I have no problem sharing that vulnerability, even with new people. And I feel like it was incredibly good material for the group because it pulled out different parts of people I'd never seen before. Like someone, you know, people became caretakers for me and other people became champions for me and other people were protective of me. And then other people were, you know, concerned or unsure. And some people were, um, they had their foundation rocked because they thought that I was some sort of pillar for them. And so now I'm no longer on that pedestal. And so many interesting thing, things happened. I would have never wanted it any other way. But in the first few meetings, as a model, and I, I, I'm saying this because we have to let um, practitioners know you need to build up the capacity for an intense amount of complexity before you run a group or be willing to make a fool of yourself as you go through right, and learn right. because sit it's, with a it's lot a, of uncertainty. sit with a lot of uncertainty and just sit there with the process and realize how much you're going to be growing as well and have no expectation to be, you know, some sort of pillar of strength for the group because at times you will not be. 
and that's okay and to have the respect for yourself and the the forgiveness for yourself that you can go through that so you know um I collapsed for a moment, but it came from a place of someone in the group that they were so upset that I wasn't going to be the leader and that I sort of forfeited that from the beginning and said, we're going to do this collaboratively. They had an expectation of me that I had already disappointed. So I became, you know, in therapy words, like the bad object. And I was just, I was such a disappointment that it became a target. And I shared in the beginning as a model, and this is the risk that I'm encouraging people to take, but to be resilient in and we'll have a whole episode on resilience, I know that's on your mind, Dan, that I said, well, you know, here's my vulnerability, and I shared it. And then that was used against me in the following, um, once I'd become this disappointment to a member in the group, they, they remembered what I said was my vulnerable side, and they went right for it. And that's what was so painful for me, because I had decided I'm going to model vulnerability because I know that disarms some people in the group and it develops safety. So it was actually strategic of me and came back to hurt me. But, you know, I can withstand that kind of, um, that kind of treatment from my training. So it's not, not that I'm a punching bag, but I understand like, you know, this is, there's a rupture here and we repaired it, but there was also a counter shaming after I was shamed publicly um, that person of the group actually checked herself into um, a facility two weeks later because of what she, how she had participated in the group. She was so ashamed of herself, but wow. she didn't bring it in. It was almost like a, bu- like an, um, an internal response to like a bullying move. I don't know. Uh, it was really complex, but it was interesting because she came back even after that, and there was all this, all this repair work. It was great. Interesting. It was great. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, sure. I. I can only imagine it took a good deal of courage to model that leadership, which is what I think that was. Is I didn't think so at the time. <laughs> well, you're because <laughs> it didn't come back to hurt me until later. <laughs> demonstrating vulnerability, demonstrating yeah. you know, yeah, um, that you're a complex human also. And I think you know, all too often therapists sort of essentially tell people to sit down and get emotionally naked in front of them, but are unwilling right. to. Um, show that they're human also oh yeah i've been on i've been on the other side of that as well it's really painful for the um the client or group member yeah uh we should probably check out yep yeah what do you want to check out with dan well i want to check out with um a thank you to some uh folks that inspired this episode okay i think uh, we wanted to have all of our episodes as much as possible based on uh, a listener's question or a response, and this one is based on a number of group participants that have asked us to talk about how we do groups, um, yeah. and for obvious confidentiality reasons, we're not going to mention who they are, but uh, we really appreciate them asking us to talk about that. Great. Anything else? No, it's. Uh, I think we covered an amazing amount of content about groups in I a really know. short time. I really... I really did. I really like this episode. I'm super passionate about this topic and I love, love running groups. That's my checkout is that if I, if I could practice in any particular way the rest of my life, it would be running groups because it's so interesting and there's so much going on all the time. It's really complex. And I think some of the most growth comes out of a group because you're coming into contact with so many different things. It's not just the one relationship with the therapist. It's all of the relationships in the group as well. And so much is always happening the dynamics that form can be really beautiful and healing. Um, 
and I, I really particularly love the relational way of running groups because it's not so intense for the practitioner. It's intense just to be in the group. So all that extra pressure that is absolutely just like not necessary and not useful in my opinion, because it's, um, it's leaving so much out of like what would organically happen in the world. And this is something that you can do in groups that are not therapy based at all. Like groups of friends. I mean, right. you know, um, so I think that if your therapist is not collaboratively cultivating culture, you should probably fire your therapist. Would you agree? Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, that's our show for today. Uh, if you want to email us, you can do so. Uh, feedback at fireyourtherapistshow.com. Follow us on Twitter at FYT Show. And like us on Facebook, FYT Show. And thank you very much for listening. Fire Your Therapist was produced by Yumi Media. Subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes or go to fireyourtherapistshow.com where you can find podcasts, resources, and more.